After your hard drive and all that, you're listening to a very special, extra special, I'd say, bonus episode of Spring Food Mo. We got a show tomorrow, Dan. That's right. A we big do. Old show. Oh, my goodness. First <laughs> year anniversary yeah. this year. Yeah, it's our second <laughs> ever live show. Yeah. Uh, I would say our best ever live show, too. Uh, we'll see about that. <laughs> Let's let the listeners be the judge. You can go back and listen to that Mexican villa episode that was at the other bookstore that's right yes the other other bookstore the mortal enemies right yes. yeah the one that the guy ran into <laughs> and is knocked out now <laughs> so anyway shows at seven tomorrow night we are asking that you donate some non-perishable food items to our food drive which will Please. go to the ozarks food harvest those are food harvest says it covers one item we're saying bring more bring what you can afford Two. let's uh, three Let's gather a bunch of food and give to people in our city who um, don't have the privilege of being, eh, let's be honest, gluttonous like we are here. We've looked at the demographics and we have some of the richest listeners (laughs) of any (laughs) podcast in Springfield. So, yeah, you may have heard we're going to be covering Casper's Casper's. There's no diner on the end of that. It's just Casper's. They serve chili. They maybe haven't always been about chili, though, which you'll learn here in just a little bit. You know how we like to do on this show. We're all about history, Dan. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You care about that a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's quite possibly my favorite part of the show. And I was personally very excited to read off, say, 10 plus minutes of history <laughs> live. <laughs> Yeah. dryly to an audience. <laughs> so rather than do that, since the story of Casper's is very long, as you'll hear, even though Dan really begged oh, to man. do that. I, I said, Andy, let me tackle this one. <laughs> let me take it to the grave. <laughs> to the grave? Because <laughs> you're going to die from doing it? Is oh, that yeah. The, oh, yeah. <laughs> we might die at this show, folks. <laughs> Not even from biographical reading, just from uh, sheer sheer effort. Yeah. From the We're going to be exhausted from the sheer effort we're going to put forth at the show. <laughs> So anyway, what you're going to hear right after this is our official bio segment for Casper's, uh, just so you can have some context for the review whenever we do the show tomorrow. Yeah. I'm so nervous. No, I'm not. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) And if you can't make it to the show, make sure to still donate some food to the Ozarks Food Harvest, and this episode will be hitting your feed on Tuesday like normal, so Uh you'll get the rest of the Casper's story, a la what Andy and I think of <laughs> Casper's. That's that's really the conclusion of the Casper's yeah. story is our definitive takes on it. Yeah, that'll be next week's episode. <laughs> I also want to thank the band Ghost Dance. They were a really popular local band featuring, uh, you know, there's maybe somebody who owns a restaurant we talk about on the show a lot. Oh, Ghosties? <laughs> yeah, Ghosties. Ghosties food truck. <laughs> uh, thanks to Ghost Dance for letting us use their song at the opening of this uh, Casper's bio. Since we started this podcast a year ago, the most requested restaurant by a wide margin has been Casper's, a self-proclaimed chili dive in a modest Quonset hut on the northwest corner of Walnut and Main Streets on the outskirts of downtown Springfield. 2019 marked the 110th year of business for Casper's. That means there's over 110 years of stories to tell. Over a century of local lore. Over 100 years of chili. chili. And of course, there's only one place to start. 
with the birth of a man who played a vital role in shaping early Springfield's food culture, a man who built a small business empire that far outlasted his own life. You know this man's name. Say it with me now. Louis Rabori. Catherine Rabori brought her son Louis Lazaro Rabori into the world on August 31st, 1867 in Genoa, Italy. Louis was the second of three children born to a family wealthy from wholesaling produce, especially fruit. In 1878, the entire family immigrated to America, specifically to Indianapolis, Indiana. Lewis worked for his father selling fruit as a teenager and as a young man. In 1890, when Lewis was 23, he joined his parents as they retired back to Italy. However, Lewis got bored there after a couple years, moved to Knoxville, Tennessee, and used some seed money from his father to start another fruit business. After four years hustling in Knoxville, Lewis accepted an offer from his strongly named brother Andrew to come work for Rabori Fruit Company, which Andrew had spent the last few years building into the primary fruit wholesaler to grocery stores in Springfield, Missouri. A quick aside here, on the third page of the November 11th, 1897 issue of Springfield's Leader Democrat newspaper was a story that read as follows. Louis Rabori, who keeps a fruit stand at the corner of South Street and the Square, was arrested today for assault on Harry Wakefield. Young Wakefield claims that he was passing by the Italian stand when the latter reached over and struck him. He denies that he was attempting to steal fruit from the stand. The case will be tried before Justice Ferguson Friday morning. The headline of this article was, and I'm not making this up, in all capital letters, he hit a the kid. <laughs> Goodness. A few days later, the paper reported that Judge Ferguson dismissed the case entirely, absolving Rabori of wrongdoing and absolving the alleged thief as well. Lewis's job at the company apparently involved managing new fruit stands as they got up and running. The phrase fruit stand back then probably isn't what you're picturing, or at least it wasn't what I was picturing at first. They weren't like small street side vendors. Fruit stands were full-blown stores in buildings with open air fronts so produce could easily be seen from the street. Louis Rabori bounced around Springfield managing new fruit stands for about nine years, but eventually he figured out a way he could do basically the same job but make way more money. Lewis left his job and began starting his own fruit stands that used his brother's company, his former employer, as the supplier. He would pick prime locations, get the stands going, and then sell them off to other interested parties at a healthy profit. Lewis would sell the business, not the land or the buildings, and he would continue charging the new business owner rent to operate there. Lewis Rabori did this many times over the next 10 years, right up until his sudden death in 1915, at which point he was only 47 years old and had amassed a fortune of about $27,000, which today equates to just over three quarters of a million American, American dollars. Dude had a good scam going. <laughs> Backing up a few years to 1909, Louis Rabori set up a fruit stand at 213 East Walnut, the space that's now the parking garage between Black Sheep and Papo's. Once Rabori had built up a solid customer base, he sold the stand to, yep, we're finally there, he sold the fruit stand to a man named Casper Letterer. Today, all the press you'll find cites the year 1909 is when Casper Letterer took over. However, the Springfield Leader and Press published an announcement of the business changing hands in August of 1910. Maybe it did happen before that, but over eight months is a long time for news to make the rounds, especially back then. 
Keep in mind that the paper published just about everything happening in Springfield, like not just who left town on trips and arrived home, but the hours they did so and the types of horses they rode in and out on. The Casper story as told today suggests that Casper began making and selling chili at the stand immediately in 1909, or, you know, maybe 1910. However, if Casper served chili in those early days, he didn't advertise it. And he did advertise in local papers, fairly often, in fact. The ads always mentioned fruit, but they also mentioned other items, and always quite colorfully. In 1912, Casper Letterer, dealer in fine fruits, candy, and ice cream. 1913, the place to get the best in fruit. Also 1913, fruit and confections, the only fruit stand on East Walnut. Another fun bit of information I found from back in this period is that Casper also owned a dedicated candy and soda shop on St. Louis Street, where the Discovery Center is now. He sold that shop to another man in 1915. In 1918, Casper married a woman named Gladys Brumley. The two would go on to have a few children, one of whom will enter this story in a much bigger way later. More important for now is that the newspaper's wedding announcement stated that the newlyweds would live together in the loft above Casper's business, which is referred to not as a chili parlor, not as a fruit stand, but as a confectionery. Early on, Casper pivoted hard from fruit to candy. Until 1921, every ad featured Casper C. Letterer's full name. But after that, there was a shift. The ads began listing the business as Letterer's Confectionaries, sometimes just Letterer's. Occasionally, the confectionery ads would peddle a 25-cent lunch plate. There's no mention of chili, though. In 1922, 13 years after Casper bought the fruit stand from Louis Rabori, Rabori's widow, Junie, and her new husband sold the Walnut Street plot to Casper for $1. I'd love to know the whole story about that, but I couldn't find anything else about it. There really isn't much information out there about Casper Letterer's business in those early days. However, it looks like Casper's confectionery was just that. From 1909 to 1944, Casper Letterer ran what was essentially a fruit basket business. Companies would commission Casper to assemble fruit baskets as gifts for their employees during the holiday season. He still sold fruit, nuts, and candy from the shop, and occasionally he experimented with serving lunch, but the primary business was the fruit baskets. Casper retired from basketry in 1944 at age 59 or 60. Four years later in 1948, Casper bought an already existing restaurant situated in a Quonset hut on the southeast corner of Glenstone and Cherokee, the space in front of the old Aunt Martha's building. And yep, this is when Casper's became known for serving chili. Well, kind of. Casper Letterer's eventual obituary said, quote, This restaurant was known for its chili and bean soup and its preparation of hams. The original Casper's on Glenstone was called Casper Letterer Lunch, but pretty quickly patrons took to calling the place Casper's, much to the chagrin of the man himself, who insisted on calling it Letterer Lunch right up until the end. I mean, that is what he named it. 
There are old photos of a cool neon sign hanging over the bar that plainly says Letterer Lunch. The double L was open until midnight and catered to an eccentric late shift crowd. It served typical diner food in addition to chili bean soup and exquisitely prepared hams burgers and hot dogs, shakes, that kind of thing. Casper ran the place for a solid 18 years, and he had some hobbies on the side too. In 1964, at age 79, Casper published a book, or a pamphlet really, of folksy home remedies he had acquired over the years, featuring cures for quote, just about everything, from chigger bites to ulcers. Charles Letterer was the son of Casper and Gladys. Born in 1928, Charles was a free-spirited and creative man. He went to art school for college and became something of a nationally renowned woodcutter. His work displayed in shows and exhibits at museums and universities across the country. Sadly, though, art doesn't pay the bills. Am I right? Charles Letterer was 38 years old in 1966 when he reluctantly began helping his 81-year-old father run the family restaurant. Each man worked three days a week, and they took Sundays off because, as everyone knows, the Lord God hates chili. <laughs> When Charles started at Casper's, he had no intention to stay. He saw it more as a temporary way to make ends meet. But he did stay. By the end of that year, Casper had entered his second retirement, and his son Charles had taken over the restaurant full-time. Charles made some changes during his tenure. He officially switched the name of the restaurant to Casper's, and he also covered the walls with his artwork, as well as work by other artists and, you know, a bunch of weird stuff. The place was like a curated hodgepodge of novelties and knickknacks accumulated over a couple decades working in the art world. Charles also began closing the restaurant in the summer between Memorial Day and Labor Day, a practice that continued for the next 45 years or so. And uh, speaking of long stretches of time, in 1971, Charles hired a teenage girl named Etta May to do dishes. At some point, Etta May became a fry cook and she just never left that job. I'm not sure if she's still working there, but she definitely was there as recently as 2014. That's 48 years. Belinda Harriman was a kid on a date in 1972 when she first visited Casper's. She thought it was a strange place, but she quickly came to love it, and soon she was a regular. Belinda wound up getting a job at Casper's five years later in 1977, and she eventually became a close friend and confidant of Charles Letterer. She was one of the few people privy to the secret chili recipe, and at one point Charles promised Belinda that she could take over the restaurant when he was ready to move on. That happened sooner than anyone expected, and under just about the most dire circumstances imaginable. In 1985, the original Caspers at Glenstone in Cherokee was forced to close by its landlords who wanted to, and did, demolish the building to create a parking lot. By that point, Caspers had been there for almost four decades, and yet, when Charles and his crew were ordered to vacate, they received 10 days notice. Everyone was devastated. Charles vowed to figure out how to reopen as soon as possible. Belinda found a similar Quonset hut on Walnut Street just west of downtown, but for some reason, Charles wasn't interested. A few months went by after that. Um, Charles Lederer had suffered through a lifelong struggle with depression, and in August of 1985, he took his own life. Casper Lederer's name is on the sign, and it's his chili recipe. But Casper's as we know it today is just as much Charles' vision as it is his dad's. The entire aesthetic came from Charles. The bright, wild, burnt orange, all the lovingly misarranged ephemera on the walls and hanging from the ceiling. Charles' personality was, and is, all over Casper's. A few days after Charles' death, the newsleader ran the following truly despicable headline. Burger tradition dies with Casper's son. Not only was it in bad taste, it was an unsourced guess, and the reality could not have been further from the truth. 
restaurant passed down to Charles's son, Jeffrey, and he sold it outright to Belinda Harriman with his full blessing. Belinda made it her life's purpose to carry on Charles's legacy. She moved Casper's into that Quonset hut she'd found at 601 West Walnut. That's where the diner still is today. Just a few blocks from Casper Letterer's original fruit stand location back in the early 1900s. Not much changed when Belinda took over. The new building had 29 seats, just two more than the old spot on Glenstone. She did eventually add Frito Pie to the menu, as well as the now-beloved Casparito. And, by the way, there's an amusing bit of lore out there about how the original chili recipe was almost lost, but then recovered in a way that's borderline supernatural, but I'm going to let you all track that down yourselves if you want to. It's not that hard to find. Yeah, that chili recipe has been a closely guarded secret for, you know... Somewhere between 80 and 110 years. One time, though, Charles Letterer did give some hints. He called it Depression-era chili, which means chili made for cheap. It's thin with only a few beans and also some filler meat products to quote-unquote stretch the beef, which provides some subtly different textures from other chilies. The filler is called suet. It's the hard white fat from animals' kidneys. It might sound gross, but if you eat meat, You've definitely eaten suet hundreds of times and not realized it. It's in puddings, pastries, minced meats, those kind of things. Casper's cooks the chili on a classic Garland stove, which was a product made by a company in Michigan as early as the 1870s. Casper's would have you believe that this is the original stove Casper Letterer used as far back as 1909, but there's no conclusive evidence that he was even serving chili back then. The Michigan Stove Company was producing over 700 different types of Garland stoves at any given time, so tracking down the exact era of whichever model they're using at Casper's would probably be pretty difficult. Belinda and Etta Mae did discover that old stove among Charles's belongings and restored it themselves, which is really cool, regardless of when it was first used. After Belinda reopened Casper's downtown in 1985, it was business as usual for several decades, with a few interesting turns along the way. The flagship Casper's remained open only seasonally. However, in December 1991, a second Casper's open year-round popped up at 2222 South Campbell, which would close after only three or four years and become a Ziggy's, which itself would later rebrand into Springfield Family Restaurant after the nefarious antics of Springfield's one and only Pancake Scarface. Belinda Harriman worked at Casper's for 35 years. That's a long time at any job, let alone food service. And in 2013, she decided it was time to move on and put the business on the market. She entertained offers and eventually accepted one from Sean Kraft and Trevor Christ, a pair of business partners and former fraternity brothers who also own Nona's Italian Cafe. Apparently, their deal is buying successful restaurants with high name recognition and just keeping them going. Since taking over, the new owners have installed a second air conditioner and expanded Casper's hours back to year-round. Also, they added fries to the menu, procured a license to sell beer, and started serving conies on hot dogs instead of hamburger buns, as had long been a Casper's custom. Chili Grease Orange, High Class Tacky, Early Manic Depressive, Elegant Poverty, Fun and Clunky, all phrases used by various owners of Casper's over the years to describe the aesthetic and vibe inside. Casper's is a unique and special place, rightfully one of the most cherished restaurants in Springfield. We think there's more to all that than just the history, the fun weird building, and the food though. 
In November 2006, Belinda Harriman sat down for an interview with a Missouri State student named Anna McCollum, a writer from the school newspaper, The Standard. In that interview, Belinda said this. We have character and we are characters. We see people come in from every walk of life. We see the regulars, rich people, college kids, and lower class people. But I treat everyone the same. We also have customers that are very old coming to Casper's. We just have a very eclectic bunch of people. We don't advertise. We are inexpensive. Kids like it and college students love it. You wouldn't know about us unless you've heard about it from someone else. This place really is a Springfield tradition. 